0: Sir Ellie, in the first interview we covered your early life and your memories of your parents. This takes us up to the early years of the war and we come now to your time in the United States from 1940 to 1944. Your father went there on a Carnegie Fellowship and took your mother and yourself with him. Do you recall the journey by sea?
1: Well, let me just go back uh, a few months in that narrative, and uh, recall that, in fact, my father was uh, invited by the Carnegie Foundation uh, to go to the United States to give uh, a number of lectures at a a series of universities, mainly in the East and Middle West of the United States. Uh, And This uh, he did not wish to do without the uh, approval, indeed encouragement, of the British Foreign Office. Uh, They were very keen that he should do it because uh, they wanted uh, some antidote antidote to the isolationism that was prevailing in quite a number of uh, universities in the United States, so they encouraged him to go, uh, and at the same time arrangements were made with the help of a committee at Yale for the reception of children of academics from England who were evacuated to the United States, so I went with my father and my mother came with us and this was in October 1940 and we left Cambridge in October 1940 uh, and uh, uh, took a train to to Liverpool and there we got on board uh, the ship called the Scythia and we set sail for the United States. Not in very encouraging circumstances because the sister ship of the uh, Scythia uh, had been torpedoed the night before, and we weren't told about it, uh, so that we couldn't get off even if we had wanted to. So we had a, a, an interesting uh, journey across the ocean. Uh, my father, most unusually for him, kept a kind of diary, uh, not really a, a, a proper narrative of the voyage, but just a few jottings of things that struck him as uh, memorable or or amusing, and I have I have the text of that, and will in due course be including it in the biography of my father, that I am meant to be writing at the present time, but seem never to get round to. But it's all there. But we, we we arrived in the United States after I think a ten-day voyage, and we were met in in New York by a friend of my father's, Professor Phillips Bradley, who had been at the London School of Economics and knew my father from there, uh, and we were. Uh, given hospitality in Bradley's house and I was immediately placed in a school in New York called Horace Mann, a a very uh, well-known and and, and, uh, high-quality private school uh, in the northern part of the Bronx. Uh, And there initially I was a boarder uh, until eventually uh, my mother uh, found a flat not too far from the school so I could walk to the school each day. In the meantime, my father, within days of our arrival in the United States, had started off on this remarkable tour that took him right down uh, via various universities on the eastern seaboard to New Orleans and then up uh, through the, the Middle West uh, to, back to places like Ann Arbor and Chicago and eventually uh, back to New York. Now, <clears throat> what he did was to produce a very interesting report uh, to a foreign office on his... Uh, journey and the lectures he gave which I think they're, they're reproduced in the uh, in volume 4 of the collected papers which I edited some years ago but I will come back to them again in the, in the biography but he did a, a, a very it was a very demanding task and he did a, a very good job of work and then he was asked to assist the Attorney General of the United States who was then a Robert H. Jackson subsequently a Supreme Court judge and also later to become the principal United States prosecutor in the Nuremberg Trials uh, and uh, he was asked by uh, Jackson to assist him in the preparation of arguments uh, counter uh, justifying the United States Lend Lease program and all aid to the Allies short of war and this he did and this is all documented and uh, Jackson and Duke gave a major speech to the American Bar Association incorporating much of the draft that my father had produced for him. And this was obviously uh, a source of of satisfaction to the the Foreign Office who were obviously concerned about these matters. Uh, My father then returned to England uh, in, I think it must have been uh, January or February, uh, 1941. Uh, he became very restive and discontented with just sitting around doing nothing in the United States. So he came back to leaving, leaving my mother and myself in the United States. And uh, I remained at uh, Horace Mann uh, until the December 1941, at which point I was then moved uh, from uh, New York up to Phillips Academy, Andover, in Massachusetts. And this was a, a, a great move for me. Andover was a, a particularly good school and is now still one of the, the leaders of the uh, American private school system uh, with, with considerable resources and uh, buildings and all the uh, things that a good school likes to have, gyms and swimming pools and so on. And there I had a, a very good, uh, intense education in the years uh, 42, 43 and uh, the first half of 44 until I graduated from Andover in June 44. In the meantime my mother had returned to England which was quite a hazardous journey for her because uh, the, the seas were by no means safe but she got back to England safely and rejoined my father and I was in the States on my own where I Enjoyed and had the benefit of the uh, quasi-guardianship of a lady professor at Wellesley College, one of the principal women's colleges in the United States, called uh, Louise Overacker. She was a professor of political science, and particularly to be remembered at the present moment, this being the the seventh of January, two thousand and eight, because she her principal work was on American. Primary, presidential primary elections uh, she was very good to me uh, she used to invite me down to Boston to go to concerts uh, of the Boston Symphony Orchestra and then she looked after me during vacations and so on I was uh, greatly indebted to her and uh, I look back on, on my relationship with her with, with much affection and uh, so I stayed at Andover until June 1944 Uh, when I graduated and was fortunate enough to be able to get uh, a crossing back to England very soon afterwards. So I arrived back in Cambridge in it must have been uh, late June, early July 1944. Uh, Of course, the war was still on. The invasion of Europe had started only weeks previously. Uh, And uh, when I got back to England, my father was Greatly disturbed by the awful uh, uh, American accent that I had acquired, which was not a, a, a genteel New England accent, but much of the worst of Brooklyn and Bronx uh, combined in it, so I was just shut up in my room each day and told to listen to the wireless, <laughs> which I which I did, and eventually was allowed to emerge and speak. So uh, then, uh, that being the summer of '44. It was arranged that I would go uh, to Harrow uh, for for two years. That was the original intention. The assumption being that having been uh, at school in America, I was insufficiently educated to cope with the situation in England. So to Harrow I went in, in September 1944 and was put into what they call the History Fifth. This is the second class from the top. And... Uh, <clears throat> But fortunately, at just that time, there arrived a new head of history at Harrow, who was a a friend of our neighbour in Cranmer Road, Cambridge, who was a a professor here. And uh, so this new history master at Harrow asked me to go and have a cup of tea with him, and we had a good chat. And he said, would you like to come up into the History 6th, which I said I certainly would. And he took a great interest in me, and helped me a lot and so encouraged me instead of aiming to spend two years at Harrow to spend only one the idea was that I would uh, take a Trinity trial scholarship exam in March of 45 and I was fortunate enough to be successful I got a so-called minor scholarship at Trinity which is quite good enough for my purposes and so I left Harrow at the end of the summer term of 1945 and came up to Trinity as an entrance scholar in October 1945. Now that was uh, as you realize uh, just after the end of the the war in Europe and so the process of demobilization had already begun and Trinity had a large proportion of its undergraduate intake uh, consisting of ex-servicemen men who had fought some of them several years in the war uh, were battle-scarred and were quite mature people and they were extraordinarily kind to me because uh, and instead of, uh, of being impatient or short with a 17 uh, a, a year old which is what I was uh, then uh, they, they uh, helped me and sought from me Help because they had themselves lost uh, contact with academic exercise. So we became good friends, many of us, and I began, therefore, in October '45, uh, to read history at Trinity, and I read history for uh, two years. Uh, I succeeded in getting a first in my first year, but in my second year I did not get a first. I got a 2-1, and this was regarded by my father as almost unforgivable lapse in standards. And uh, But I simply didn't, uh, didn't take to some of the subjects I was meant to be learning. For example, uh, one of my principal subjects was medieval history, and it meant nothing to me at all. I just wasn't interested. And even today I couldn't tell you what was the period of the Dark Ages, or quite who Charlemagne was, or things like that. So anyway... I uh, uh, read history for two years and at the end of my second year, on the advice of my director of studies, who was a great fellow called uh, Kitson Clark, I moved to law. He said I would be better off as a lawyer and as it turns out he was right. So in uh, uh, in 1946 October, I, I began reading law I read what is called the Law Qualifying 2 exam uh, and then uh, I followed that uh, in a, another year with the Law Tripos Part 2 which are the ordinary English law subjects including international and constitutional law and then uh, after I had uh, finished Law Tripos my father urged me to stay on and read for the LLB now called the LLM. Uh, specializing in international law, the so-called Section D of the LLB. And (coughs) being a a, a dutiful son, one I think who had enough sense to follow good parental advice in that matter at any rate, uh, I stayed on for the extra year. But I began to um, chafe a little bit uh, in the course of that year. And I remember very well uh, walking back with my father from a lecture uh, one day, because it was his practice to lecture on Tuesdays and Thursdays from 12 to 1 and it was my uh, habit to to accompany him on his walk home from the, the then Squire Law Library to Cranmer Road to have lunch with my parents and I said to him, you know, I was getting fed up I, s- I recalled the, uh, <coughs> the lines of Bernard Shaw who said that those who can do and those who can't teach And my father, and I've never forgotten, said to me, yes, maybe, but it's a good life. And now that I've spent uh, more than uh, 50 years in Cambridge, I realize what a good life it is, and in my case could have been, if I'd stuck to teaching. But um, my my interests range more widely than that, as I will tell you presently. But uh, that took me through to um, 1950, 1949, 1950 was the year of my LLB. So uh, then <coughs> in uh, June 1940 sorry, in June 1950, I've made a mistake about the years, in June 1950 I finished the LLB here and was ready to step out into the, the wide world. Uh, in the meantime I'd been taking the bar exams i had become a a member of Gray's Inn and I was taking the bar exams with a view to doing my, my finals uh, and, and uh, being called to the bar. Well I, I um, took my bar exams uh, in those days uh, nobody attached much importance to the result you got and I, I passed with a third except in one subject which I failed which I think was equity and so I had to retake that in due course I was called to the bar And uh, I became a pupil uh, in chambers in London at 3 Essex Court, which was a leading set of commercial chambers. And my pupil master was John McGore, who was a a, a brilliant lawyer. Uh, had a first-class mind of uh, Northern Ireland extraction, uh, uh, a Rugger International, uh, a very demanding, a very highly principled man who eventually went on to the High Court bench and then to the Court of Appeal, and should really have been promoted to the House of Lords, but uh, I think that his temperament was a little, his temper rather, was a little bit short and irascible, and that that did not make him popular, so he didn't get to the House of Lords, but I always remember him as a great teacher to me, uh, and very exacting in his standards, and he required good work, and I tried to satisfy him. So there I was in chambers in uh, October 1950. But I have to, to go back a few months because in the course of that summer of 1950, I had become a, a joint secretary of a government committee, the, uh, a committee of, uh, established by the Cabinet Office and the Foreign Office for the purpose of looking into the law of state immunity, the so-called Somerville Law. Uh, committee which consisted of Lord Justice Somerville and a number of high civil servants plus uh, some academics uh, which included uh, Professor Hampson who was the then Professor of Comparative Law in this university and my father and so I became Joint Secretary of, of that committee uh, and the other secretary was a, a, a civil servant, a very nice chap called Geoffrey Penn and together we we administered and did whatever was necessary and I spent my summer in the Foreign Office doing research on diplomatic immunity. Mm. And by the time I'd finished, I'd produced a quite substantial memorandum in which I had uh, analysed and uh, presented uh, a lot of the uh, material in the Foreign Office archives on various questions of diplomatic immunity. Interesting. So then I went into uh, chambers with John McGaw. Uh, I uh, was living in a house in Albany Street with several ex-Cambridge people. We had a, a very agreeable bachelor existence there and I used to to walk down from the top end of Albany Street to, to the temple most mornings and uh, uh, get into chambers and in those days it was uh, appropriate to wear uh, a, a striped trousers and black jacket and a bowler hat and a, carry a furled umbrella, all of which I dutifully did. So Uh, There I was in Chambers as a pupil. Uh, We're at at 1950. And so I spent my time in Chambers working on commercial law, uh, insurance, uh, shipping law, banking, uh, uh, (coughs) bankers' commercial credits, all those kinds of things. And uh, in order to eke out my existence, because funds were not very ample, I uh, did two kinds of lecturing. I lectured in one of the uh, city colleges, I remember, on exceptions uh, in charter parties and bills of lading, a subject about which I knew absolutely nothing uh, uh, before my lectures and little enough after. And I was only about uh, five minutes ahead of my class. So I did that. And also, uh, uh, more comfortably, I was lecturing in the evenings at the London School of Economics. Uh, in international law. At that time the law faculty at LSE was run by two very fine men. One was Sir David Hughes Parry and the other was Professor Jim Gower. And they were very, very uh, supportive and encouraging and I enjoyed my teaching there in the evenings. Uh, And ultimately uh, this led them in 1950, uh, early 1953 to offer me a post, a full-time teaching post at LSC, and indicated very strongly that if I took it, I would probably get a chair within five years, which would have been a splendid thing to have happened. At the same time, however, I received an offer from Trinity, Trinity College, Cambridge, because I had, in addition to the teaching of bills of lading at the City College, or whatever it was called, and the evening teaching at LSE, I was coming up to Cambridge at weekends to supervise in Trinity. So I would leave London uh, on a a Friday afternoon, uh, reach Cambridge in time uh, to (coughs) do uh, two or three hours of supervision before 8 o'clock hall on Friday. And then I would uh, go into hall and maybe do another hour after, and on Saturday morning would do another two or three, so it was really quite a demanding schedule. And then to that was added uh, the the possibility, or the opportunity, I should say, of giving some lectures in the faculty. Because at that time, the faculty had, uh, as professor my father, and there was uh, Robbie Jennings and Clive Parry, but um, there wasn't anybody, so to speak, younger than them doing any work. And so I was given the opportunity of lecturing on the law of international organization and the law of war. And so I was doing that also. Well, as I say, uh, Trinity in uh, it must have been early 1953 uh, offered me uh, a fellowship and a college lectureship, which I have to distinguish from a university lectureship, a college lectureship which involved my uh, supervising in college. Uh, uh, ultimately 12 hours a week. And um, I was sorely torn, I did not know which to take, London or Cambridge. But eventually uh, I chose Cambridge. Uh, As I look back on it, I think that that the factors that most influenced me were, one that the Cambridge academic year was significantly shorter Mm -hmm. than the LSE year and the LSE had 30 teaching weeks and Cambridge only had Not even 24. It had 24 weeks of the three terms, but effectively only 20 teaching weeks. So that was a a, a most favourable aspect of Cambridge. Uh, And also the the quality of life in Cambridge was was more agreeable. I I, I I was given a a nice set of rooms in college, uh, and uh, (coughs) so I chose Cambridge. Often, often I have looked back and asked myself, did I make the right decision? Because in terms of the impact that I might have made on international law, I think that if I had been in London and had got uh, a chair at a relatively early age, I would have been able to influence developments in international activity and teaching in England uh, more than I was able to. Nonetheless, uh, uh, as I say, it's a no good um, and going back over things like that. And so that brings us to 1953. And uh, I came up to Trinity and had a very nice room, a set of rooms in New Court of Trinity, uh, looking out on that big chestnut tree in the middle of the court. And of course at about that time I was courting the lady who eventually became uh, my wife. And we, we got married in uh, July 1955, two years after I came up to Trinity, and she was in London uh, studying law at London School of Economics. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> uh, then, uh, I let's I say, I spent uh, uh, the year of fifty, the, the second half of fifty-three, at Trinity. Now, even before I had left London, uh, left Chambers, and I never actually left Chambers in the sense of ceasing to be a tenant there because I had become one in, in, in the previous uh, year. Uh, even before I had um, moved to Cambridge, I was already getting work of an international law nature, uh, opinions and so on. And most of the work then came from uh, a firm, well-known firm, Solicitors Linklaters and Paynes, who were the solicitors of the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company, later to become BP. And so I was doing opinions for them at the same time as I was uh, teaching in Cambridge. Then um, we move into 1954 and I'm continuing the work in London, uh, going up to London uh, very often during the week and coming back within the day. And in 1954, there began the intensive preparations that led up to the Uh, resolution of the Iranian oil nationalization now uh, I've (coughs) Uh, yes the Iranian oil nationalization this had happened in 1950 when uh, Mossadegh had been Prime Minister Uh, in the in the winter of 1953 uh, BP or Anglo-Iranian as it then was had asked me to, uh, to analyze and assess uh, the possible Iranian counterclaims which had been uh, identified by the BBC world service uh, from Iranian radio broadcasts and i remember spending uh, three very hard working weeks in december 1953 analyzing the situation and and discovering that even at that time uh, bp uh, uh, the iran could counterclaim against BP for a quite considerable sum, but nothing, of course, compared to what uh, Iran owned BP arising out of the nationalisation. So, uh, by the beginning of 1954, I was well in with, with Anglo Iranian, and I was constantly being asked for advice. Uh, uh, their, their principal outside lawyer was Sir Hartley Shawcross, who had been uh, Attorney General in the Labour government, but by then had returned to private practice so he and I worked together quite closely eventually in the course of 1954 it must have been July August 1954 uh, I was included in the team of lawyers that were sent out to Iran uh, to uh, help in the negotiation of the so-called consortium agreement which was the agreement that brought the nationalization to an end Yes, Maria. Oh, Peppa, where is he? I'm going to feed them. Yeah, but where is he? I don't know. It must be outside. <coughs> is he? No, I think one of them came through, Mario. Is he in his basket? Oh you know, is over there, but Oh, the Peppa didn't come through. Pepper is still in the house, I think. Oh. Ah. Sorry. Is that? And uh, did you? Could you switch off?
0: I, I'll delete it when when I edit. Okay. All thing. right. Bye.
1: Yeah. So. I think I have to interrupt from... Exactly. I need a a sip of water. Thank you, So I went out to uh, Iran in the summer of 1954 as part of this team. We were 14 lawyers uh, (coughs) representing eight oil companies. There were the five American majors, uh, standard uh, of... uh, Standard of New Jersey, Standard of New York, Soccone, and uh, Standard of California, SoCal, plus Gulf, and uh, one other American major, Texas, the Texas oil company. There were five American companies, each of them had uh, a lawyer there, and then there were the three European companies, uh, Anglo-Iranian, CFP, Compagnie Française de Pétrole. Uh, and a shell, who were um, also uh, involved, but of course Anglo-Iranian was, uh, in a sense, the one that was most interested. But having regard to the circumstances which had given rise to the opening of negotiations, namely American uh, influence uh, in in Iran, the lead lawyer in our team was a man called Tom Monahan, who was the general counsel of. Uh, Esso, Standard of New York uh, was a very able and very nice man who most sadly died not very long afterwards but it was he who uh, prepared the basic outline of the consortium agreement and so each of the, we were 14 lawyers round the table and we worked in, a, a, in the garden of a lovely house in Taj in, in Tehran uh, and <coughs> we, we, we drafted the consortium agreement, each of us was responsible for certain articles. And I was given uh, the articles that related to proper law, non-interference by the host state and uh, dispute settlement, which were very interesting articles. And, and I'm very glad uh, to observe that over time, uh, those articles, particularly the one on dispute settlement, have been uh, adopted uh, very widely in the oil industry uh, in, in its relations with host countries. So the, the summer of, uh, of uh, 50, 1954 was taken up largely with, uh, with the Iranian settlement. Uh, there I met um, a number of, uh, uh, of uh, what we call principals, that is, say, uh, not lawyers, but the, the, the directors and executives of the company, they were all very charming. The whole uh, exercise was was great fun, and for me, uh, I was then 26 years old, uh, a great eye-opener, and uh, and, um, uh, I learned a lot. So,
0: uh, I then... You mentioned in your list that you kindly gave me that you encountered during this period um, Stephen Schwebel,
1: Oh, I've, yes, I, I missed you. Let me, uh, I'll come back to them in a moment. Uh, but I just wanted to, to conclude on, on what was happening in the summer of uh, 1954. And that is that uh, uh, I met these uh, oil company executives. And I then formed the idea that it would be very nice if we could establish uh, an institution that could collect some money and distribute it in the development and research of international law. And so uh, I was able to set up the International Law Fund with contributions from Shell and Anglo-Iranian and a few other companies. And it was very generous of them to help us out then. Unfortunately, they couldn't keep up their contributions and I I didn't have the standing or indeed the energy or time to go on pressing them and others for further funds. So the International Law Fund, although it still exists and still has a certain amount of money, which uh, uh, we the trustees, the present trustees, would much like to see used for good causes, uh, it hasn't actually grown very significantly. The initial trustees were uh, Sir Hartley Shawcross, Lord McNair, and Sir Gerald Fitzmaurice, who was then the legal advisor of the Foreign Office. So that was one of the uh, uh, side growths of the the summer of 1953. Now, I, I passed perhaps uh, too rapidly over the uh, the academic side of things. As I told you earlier, uh, I, I had been supervising in college, which was quite demanding. I supervised only in well, I remember in those first years, I had to supervise in something called English legal system, which I found incredibly boring. It was mainly le- ancient legal history, and didn't really suit me at all. But uh, then I was left with constitutional law and international law, two subjects which went very well together. And I enjoyed that. And, of course, in those days, constitutional law was very different from what it is now. Uh, it, uh, then the, the remedies against the crown were, were identified as being prohibition mandamus certiorari habeas corpus. Today you have uh, administrative law, a whole yeah. new area of law uh, judicially developed, which is, which is most exciting. But then we had to, to, to work our way through the so-called prerogative writs. Then I had some associations outside my strict academic teaching. In 1950, I had arrived in Cambridge, uh, Stephen Schwabel, who was a, a graduate of Harvard University, who had not yet been to law school, but had a, an interest in international law, and had indeed already written a book on the Secretary-General of the United Nations, which was quite a a remarkable achievement for a man who was then uh, only about uh, 23 years old. So I uh, began my friendship with him then, which has, I am glad to say, subsisted to the present day. And we've been very close friends ever since. And he has, of course, progressed mightily, having eventually become president of the International Court of Justice. Now, another person with whom I had uh, some close connection at that time was an Indian, uh, a gentleman called Nagendra Singh uh, he was the son of a maha, Maharaja of a, of a small princely state called Dungapur but unusually for younger sons he had gone into the Indian civil service, he had been at Cambridge before the war and he decided he wanted to learn international law he had come back to England for a year to the Imperial Defence College and had got in touch with my father to ask whether he could recommend uh, somebody who could help him find his way around international law as he taught himself the subject. So my father recommended me because I was in London. And so uh, uh, Nagendra Singh and I began a very, very pleasant relationship. Uh, we met once a week for dinner. Uh, and he would give me dinner and I would talk international law with him. And from that there sprouted a friendship that lasted until Nagendra Singh's uh, untimely and premature death when he was actually president of the International Court of Justice, so those were two two associations that went back to the uh, earliest days of my involvement in international law. I wondered about that. So, so now we can come back to uh, to 1954, and mm-hmm. <coughs> one thing that happened in 1954, which was very interesting, was the Rosemary case. Uh, when uh, Anglo Iranian was nationalized in 1950, it uh, <coughs> began a series of measures in, aimed at uh, inhibiting the sale of oil from the area of what had been the Anglo Iranian concession. They, they just didn't, uh, obviously, didn't want to let the Iranians get away with it. So uh, they issued warning notices in the press of the world saying that if anybody buys oil from Iran, uh, we will sue them because we consider uh, that it's our oil since it has been unlawfully taken from us by an act of nationalisation without compensation. And I I was involved when I was in chambers with John McGaw in quite a lot of that activity. And then lo and behold, sometime in 1953, I think it must have been, uh, there was a little tanker called the Rosemary, which left um, uh, Iran with a cargo of oil and <coughs> broke down not very far from Aden. Uh, where It was taken into Aden with the aid of a tug. And because Aden was at that time a British colony, uh, proceedings were begun immediately by uh, anglo iranian against the, the vessel and its owners for the recovery of the oil and John McGaw was flown out to Aden uh, and, and conducted proceedings before the judge there. The, the short argument being uh, this cargo of oil belongs uh, to Anglo-Iranian because it has come from an area within the Anglo-Iranian concession and Anglo-Iranian owned that oil there and <clears> there <throat> has been no valid transfer of title Excuse me, no <coughs> valid transfer of title because of the violation of international law. Now this set of instructions from London solicitors came into Chambers, and John, of course, said, I don't know anything about this sort of matter. And I said, Well, I think I can help you here. So I took the papers away that weekend and worked on it and produced uh, a note for him by the, the following Monday. And then he went off to Aden. And uh, there he succeeded in getting a decision in favor of Anglo-Iranian. And then uh, uh, there was an appeal lodged. In those days, appeals lay from the courts of Aden to the East African Court of Appeal in Nairobi. Uh, And that appeal uh, came on for hearing in Nairobi in December 1954. And I was part of the small team that went out uh, to participate in it the leader was Sir Hartley Shawcross, John McGaugh was with him, and I was the second junior. And then we were accompanied by the instructing solicitor, John Gauntlet, from Linklaters and Paynes, and the company secretary of Anglo-Iranium, Bill Park. Not Bill Park. um, Oh dear, they suddenly slipped my mind. But anyway, all very agreeable people. And we turned up in Nairobi for for, for the hearing, and uh, the appellants, uh, the, uh, the owners and charters of the vessel, didn't turn up at all. So the case was immediately dismissed for want of prosecution, and we all had a great party <laughs> in, in the new Stanley Hotel that night, and we came home. Uh, and one of our party, let him be labless, but it wasn't me, uh, was taken off the plane in London, suffering as <laughs> he came from nervous exhaustion <laughs> and brought on, no doubt, by overconsumption of alcohol. But we had we were a very happy party, and the Rosemary uh, became a very famous case, uh, and uh, was the subject of much academic and professional comment, and uh, was in uh, and it played a role in the development of uh, a large case law in the United States and to some extent in the United Kingdom on the effect in domestic law of foreign actions violative of international law. So that was the the rosemary in 1954 and we move on then uh, to the the next significant matter in which I was involved. When I came back from Tehran in 1954 having concluded the consortium agreement uh, there were many meetings between the oil companies in London to work out exactly how uh, 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 their relationship was to be uh, uh, maintained, and I would be—I uh, would go to those meetings uh, together with the the silk who was leading me, a very very fine man called Milner Holland, uh, and uh, to represent Anglo-Iranian ore, which had by then changed its name to British Patrol, (BP). And uh, there, at those meetings, on behalf of Shell there was a very fine lawyer called Sir Valentine Holmes, uh, exceedingly able advocate, not a, not a person of uh, uh, exactly charismatic uh, uh, character, but but a man who made a great impression on the courts by his uh, ability as a lawyer and his modesty in the way in which he presented things. Uh, Val Holmes was there for shell, and he seemed to like the way I was doing things, so Shell asked BP whether BP would have any objection to my assisting Shell in another matter. And so I was briefed to go out to Singapore in a case in which Shell was seeking to recover from the Crown quantities of oil and petroleum stocks that had been found by the Crown upon the liberation of Singapore, these being stocks that had been taken from the concession areas in the Dutch East Indies Belonging to a Shell and its uh, Dutch uh, associate, Batavische uh, Petroleum Mtschap, B.P.M. So I went out to uh, to Singapore to assist the local lawyer, who was a, a an Englishman, the senior partner in the major firm in Singapore called Drew Napier. And uh, we we um, had a uh, we we. we uh, fought the case at first instance but unfortunately uh, we we lost it and uh, the decision was taken that we should appeal and the advice I had to give was that uh, I thought that it would be necessary for Sir Hartley Shawcross to go out and do the appeal Uh, and this he did Uh, we we had a very enjoyable time out there together uh, and he succeeded and interestingly enough the Crown did not prosecute an appeal from the Court of Appeal in Singapore to the Privy Council as it w- was entitled to do. In other words, the Crown was indicating that it might not win in the Privy Council. It didn't want to to, to fail on that issue. Which was the issue of whether the Japanese uh, had acquired uh, a title uh, to the, uh, the, the oil stocks such as to classify it as booty of war which the capital, i.e. the UK, could seize and hold. And we established that it was not booty of war. So that was the Singapore oil stocks in 1954. And then, uh, at the same time, I I have to recall, I was pursuing an academic career. And uh, so at about that time, I developed the idea that it would be useful to have a Survey of Contemporary British Practice in the Field of International Law. And so I began the series, which was initially called BPIO, British Practice in International Law. Oh no, it was actually called The Contemporary Practice of the United Kingdom in the Field of International Law, which was a rather heavy title, which was subsequently abbreviated to BPIO, British Practice in International Law. And I started that, the first issue I think, came out in the as a supplement to or, or as a, an article in the International and Comparative Law Quarterly. Uh, and <coughs> uh, Has it been continued,
0: Sir Ellie? Sorry? Has this been continued? No,
1: I'm going to go on and tell you about that. <coughs> Sorry. And so um, <coughs> uh, I began BPIO, which uh, was really, really involved me in. Uh, surveying all official UK activity in the field of international, namely uh, proceedings in Parliament, judicial decisions, uh, treaties, and so on, and uh, presenting them in classified form. And I did this for some years, uh, and uh, eventually, in the later years, as I got busier and busier, I had the assistance of uh, Gillian White, who had recently... Uh, got a PhD at London on, for her book on nationalisation in international law and Gillian and was an immense help And between us we, we, we continued it and then we began to fall behind or I began to fall behind so much so that to my surprise the, the British Institute took it upon itself to take the matter out of my hands and although they had the copy for the 1968 issue they never published it, and eventually the whole idea was transferred into the British Yearbook of International Law, where it currently appears as what we call "UK" the United Kingdom materials on international law. But that very useful uh, annual compilation in the British Yearbook has its roots it's in in British practice in international law in the in the um, uh, uh, International Comparative Law Quarterly. Now. <coughs> One thing I haven't mentioned is that, uh, of course, in about 1959, uh, (coughs) I'm feeling I'm I'm getting a little bit out of order chronologically. So, uh, in about 1959, uh, steps were being taken to establish the British Institute of International and Comparative Law. Uh, The the prime movers were uh, Lord Denning, and Lord Diplock, and I think uh, Lord Wilberforce. And they were uh, generous enough to ask me if I might be interested in being a director. And uh, uh, we had a meeting at which I represented that I thought that if the British Institute was to carry academic weight, uh, it really needed to be associated with a university, and the director should be a professor in a university, and, uh, uh, and that way it would have some standing academic standing now th- this did not commend itself to them and they eventually uh, chose a, 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 very, a very fine man Norman Marsh to be the first director of the institute his, his inclinations were more attuned to their ideas of, of the institute being a, <coughs> a place where uh, all sorts of people could meet and then it was aimed less at Academic production in those days, uh, than at uh, uh, conveying to the profession developments in the law, and giving them uh, giving professionals an opportunity uh, to discuss it. And so the the uh, British Institute came into existence, and the with it the International and Comparative Law Quarterly, and the publication within which I initially produced BPIL. Now, I've also got myself quite seriously. Uh, out of order chronologically, because uh, <coughs> by emphasising the uh, Anglo-Iranian oil uh, negotiations with Iran, which began, as I say, in '53 and went on in '54, I've omitted to mention uh, <coughs> uh, the the Nottebohm case in the International Court of Justice. Uh, this was a case between Liechtenstein and Guatemala arising out of the seizure <coughs> of the assets of. Mr. Liechtenstein national uh, the, the solicitor who was running the case uh, uh, was a very uh, capable man uh, called uh, Lohenfeld. Lohenfeld was a solicitor, a, a solicitor in Cambridge who had come from Germany before the war. And uh, he, he was uh, close to the Liechtenstein government and so was able to uh, <coughs> um, uh, develop the case for them initially uh, they had um, used my father for advice and guidance but uh, he uh, my father was elected to the international court of justice in november of 1954 and therefore he could not continue with the case they needed in any case in any event they needed a junior to do the drafting and so i was instructed to prepare the memorial which is the first pleading in the case in the Nottebohm case, uh, and uh, there was an objection to the jurisdiction of the court raised by Guatemala, uh, and uh, the counsel for um, for, for um, Liechtenstein was uh, uh, not uh, was um, Guggenheim, a Swiss professor from Geneva, very, very again a very able man. Uh, and uh, I uh, wasn't actually formally instructed to, to participate in that hearing, though I was there. And uh, we won on jurisdiction, then we went on to the merits. And the, the difficulty there was that this coincided with the very heavy work that I was doing, A, in teaching in Cambridge, and B, in working on the Anglo-Iranian matters. So I wasn't able to to, to uh, meet the deadlines, and so felt transferred work to to uh, Dr. Lipstein and that's how he, he came into the, the matter. So that was not a bone back in 1953 uh, 50 or 54. So we go on from there to, can we just have a pause for a bit? Of course. It's really quite hard work. Absolutely. Um,
0: what I'll do is, um, I'll just edit out, I, if, I, I'll leave it on Certainly, because we, when I when I stop, it then makes two files. There isn't an actual facility to pause. It's either record or stop. So um, that means that over the weekend, it's difficult for me to listen to, to um, you know the files as one. And I I like see. To, so, so <coughs> I'm going to edit this this um, you know interlude. Out.
1: So it's got enough capacity to yes. cope with these interruptions. Yes.
0: It has. I'll just um, have a look and see. Yes, the, I, I put in some new batteries before I came.
1: I see. So it's, it's okay. Very good. Yes. All right. Well, we'll so go just on. Then.
0: But just—it's it, really absolutely brilliant. Um, as, as we're going along, it's just, you must just say when you when you want to
1: yeah, stop we, we, and we'll then carry, we can on, carry on, on again. Yeah, sure yes. thing. Lovely. So uh, uh, to start again. Uh, on the academic side, at about that time, I, was, uh, I had been made a, an assistant lecturer in Cambridge, and so I had a post in the university. And there I was uh, lecturing on the law of international institutions and uh, the law of war and dispute settlement. Uh, and th- I gave uh, two lectures in each course every week during the academic year, which was quite, quite demanding because... Yes. Uh, I had to prepare them from scratch and my normal practice at that time was to get up at 5 o'clock every morning and work without interruption until 9 o'clock preparing the lecture. Then I was able to give it at 10 o'clock before I'd forgotten everything (laughs) I'd learned in the previous four hours. And uh, I was also asked in that year, 1959, uh, to become Director of Studies of the Research Uh, centre of the Hague Academy of International Law. As you know, the the Hague Academy uh, uh, runs courses of lectures each year. But in addition, it began at that time to have a supplementary activity in the form of a research centre where there was a director of studies and uh, a group of uh, qualified, mostly postgraduate, or indeed all postgraduate students working together on a subject nominated by the Academy. Uh, And it was in two divisions, an English-speaking and a French-speaking division. So I was asked to to direct the English-speaking division in the year 1959, when we dealt with the the Law of Treaties. And then that was continued uh, in the uh, year 1960 uh, for the Law of the Sea. And uh, that was a time when I began my friendship with a number of uh, people whom i maintained contact ever since, particularly uh, Krzysztof Skubiszewski from Poland, who subsequently became uh, Foreign Minister of Poland and has for the last uh, number of years been the uh, President of the Iran-US Claims Tribunal. So I did that in in those two years, and that was the most satisfying teaching I was doing because one of the interesting aspects of it was that people who had never really uh, been involved or immersed in the jurisprudence of the international court for the first time became closely acquainted with it and it achieved quite a conversion in their thinking and this was particularly true of the people who came from uh, communist countries mm-hmm. and there were several Poles who, for whom it was, it was an eye opener and, and very satisfying for me to see how their attitudes developed mm-hmm. uh, <coughs> And not only did I have Skubishevsky there, I had my old friend Hans Blix uh, and uh, others too. So.
0: You mentioned, Sir Eli- the name of Collier.
1: Yes, and John Collier was also one of the, the, the participants in, in, I think, in the 1960 wow. session. Then we <coughs> move on to the problem of flags of convenience. I can't, I'm can't. i not sure about the dates exactly, but uh, while I was working on British practice in international law, of course I was familiar with uh, the emergence of the new international organization, IMCO, the International Maritime Consultative Organization. And <clears throat> one day I got a telephone call from uh, solicitors in London, a coward chance as they then were, Uh, asking whether I could assist them. And it appeared that uh, Mr. Niarchos, who was a major owner of ships under the the Greek flag and other flags of convenience, uh, was very much concerned about the way in which the IMCO Assembly was approaching (coughs) the problem of the composition of the Maritime Safety Committee, Uh, the inclination of a number of the traditional ship-owning states, for example, the United Kingdom, Norway, France, and so on, was to exclude uh, Liberia and Panama from membership of the Maritime Safety Committee because, uh, in the view of the traditional states, those other states did not own the shipping uh, that uh, uh, flew their flag. And the uh, composition of the Maritime Safety Committee was prescribed... By the constitution of IMCO as being uh, composed of the largest ship-owning nations. So this was a move to exclude these states and uh, Mr. Nyakos and others wanted uh, <coughs> to, to, to oppose that. And I went down to assist them and went to the IMCO conference. And we eventually uh, prevailed with the assistance of the United States which favoured the existence of uh, these flags of convenience. We prevailed upon the IMCO Assembly to seek an advisory opinion from the International Court on the composition of the Maritime Safety Committee. Uh, And in that, I I played a a substantial role in drafting the pleadings of the Liberian government. I didn't actually appear on their behalf because uh, the people who represented them in the case, in the hearings, were two uh, Liberian uh, officials. But I had written all the, the, this, the uh, memoranda and indeed drafted the speeches for them beforehand. And, uh, and we succeeded in the International Court in establishing or maintaining the, the right of Liberia and Panama to be members of the uh, Maritime Safety Committee. It, it was an occasion on which I had an unexpected opportunity to deploy some of the knowledge I'd acquired in teaching constitutional law uh, in Cambridge, because one of the members of the court asked a question, namely uh, whether when Great Britain had voted against uh, Liberia and Panama, it had been aware of uh, the true size of uh, the, the true details of the ownership of Liberian and Panamanian flag ships. And Council for Britain uh, got up and answered, no, they they didn't know the exact numbers. Uh, My my, uh, Liberian colleagues were all for jumping up and commenting straight away. I said, no, just wait, wait, and we'll deal with it later. And we came back to it later, and we were able to point out that in... (coughs) a British constitutional case called AP Picture Houses and Williamsbury Corporation, uh, it, an administrative action was deemed to be invalid if taken on the basis of uh, unsound knowledge of the facts. And so we were able to get up and point out that here was the British government saying that it didn't really know the facts before it exercised its vote. And the court seemed to absorb that point and they eventually gave a decision in favour of Liberia and Panama, and uh, the, the uh, Maritime Safety Committee was reconstituted at the next uh, conference of IMCO. So that takes us to sort of the end of uh, 1959, the beginning of 1960. And uh, the next major event in my life, and it was really a major and traumatic event, was the, the, uh, the death of my father, Sir Park, in May 1960. Uh, this had not been expected. He had had a heart attack in October 1959 and um, in The Hague, and he had uh, gone off for six months to recuperate. Then he returned to The Hague in, I think it was April 1960, and then had shown some uh, unsatisfactory signs, and the doctors in The Hague recommended that he should go back to England to consult doctors here. And uh, he he saw Lord Moron, who was one of the principal physicians in London at that time, who immediately said that he should see uh, a specialist. And uh, the specialist said, I must operate on you without any further delay. And this was uh, in the first week of May 1960. And he went into the London clinic for an operation that took place on the 8th of May. And... uh, He didn't come out of the operation. He had a further heart attack during the operation. That's a strange thing that there was no uh, cardiologist or cardiac surgeon available at that time. It was a Sunday. But not that it would necessarily have saved him, nor indeed that it would necessarily have been to his advantage because in the course of the operation they had identified the fact that he had a a cancer uh, of the bowel which had spread into the liver and was inoperable. So he would have had a very unhappy remaining few months of life. So he was taken very suddenly and very unexpectedly from my mother and myself on Sunday eight May 1960 and uh, his passing obviously was emotionally uh, uh, devastating but it also uh, impacted on my life because there were all sorts of things that had to be done uh, following his, his death. And uh, 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 one of them was that uh, uh, arrangements needed to be made regarding the editing of the International Law Reports, which was the series that he had begun with Arnold McNair uh, way back in 1929. And so I took on the editing of that with the approval of uh, Lord McNair, who was the then uh, chairman of the the Committee of uh, Advisors. And uh, was immensely helped, in fact I couldn't have done it, with by, by, without her, by, by, by Gillian White, who had been helping me on the um, BPIL. And she, she worked for some years until she, she uh, got her own share at Manchester, and her involvement in the ILR dropped off. Uh, and I managed to keep the thing going, uh, and then... When I came back from Australia, a matter to which I'll come in due course, I was able to recruit a young Cambridge graduate called Christopher Greenwood to to, to assist me, and that was back in 1978. And here we are 30 years later, and Christopher Greenwood is (coughs) Professor at the London School of Economics and the British-nominated candidate for election to the International Court in this coming November. And we hope, of course, that that election will be successful. And he has, for 30 years, really maintained the ILR. And I hope he'll go on doing so for a long time yet. And it's become a very significant series. It now runs through 132 volumes, having uh, been left by my father back at volume, I think, the volume from 1957, which was run by somewhere in the 20s. So it's, 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 it's gone on. Uh, It has problems, financial problems, because it's expensive to produce and it has only a limited circulation. And the material that needs to be covered by a series of international law reports has expanded incredibly. There are so many new international tribunals and so much more international law litigation in national courts that uh, even now that it's expanded to four volumes a year, it still finds it very difficult to cope with the material. So we're in the process now of trying to resolve those difficulties. One way in which we're approaching it is to put it all online, uh, and that will be done by the Cambridge University Press uh, in due course. But uh, uh, as I say, uh, after my father's death, I took on the ILR, I had foolishly, while he was still alive and he had made a suggestion to me that I should take over the editing of Oppenheim, Oppenheim's International Law, I'd foolishly uh, been uh, childishly arrogant. I said, No, no, I, I'm going to write my own book. I never have. And I didn't take on the editing of Oppenheim, which may actually have been to the, the ultimate benefit of the international community because uh, it was edited in due course, though, after a lapse of some uh, 20, 30 years by Sir Robert Jennings and Sir Arthur Watts and the, the, their edition, their ninth edition of the first volume of Offenheim is a major uh, contribution to the subject and they've done it very much better than I ever could have but uh, I've regretted over the years that I didn't uh, uh, approach it more constructively. So uh, In order to provide a suitable memorial for my father, I decided that I would try and republish in systematic form uh, the many articles that he'd written on international law. He had intended to to write uh, his own textbook but never got around to it, but uh, he left some outlines, and so I followed those outlines, and it took a long time to do the job, but eventually uh, we produced the five volumes of the collected papers, there are publication dates ranging from uh, the, the, uh, early, the late '60s till uh, the late, till the early 2000s. Uh, and in, in that task, the completion of that task, I was greatly aided by one of my assistants, uh, Penelope Neville, who's now a fellow of Darling College. So um, we then go on to other events in 1966 uh, in the 1960s. One earlier event in the 1960s was uh, the so-called Lost Counties uh, Dispute in Uganda. It had been, uh, Uganda had become a British protectorate in the early part of the 20th century. It had been Britain's practice when occupying territories in Africa to use one tribe to help subdue the next. And so when it came to Uganda, it had used the Baganda, to help subdue the Banyoro, and had rewarded the Baganda with land belonging to the Banyoro, the so-called Six Lost Counties. And uh, as the date for the termination of British rule in Uganda approached in 1962... The Banyora became very restive. They were prepared to, to live with this deprivation of territory so long as Britain was in control. But the thought that uh, Britain was going meant that uh, they didn't feel, feel comfortable with it. So uh, they uh, sought help in the UK, and they, 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 the Omakama of Banyora who was a very nice man. He uh, didn't quite know what to do. There was a British journalist working there, and he asked him to find some help. And the journalist came to a, a solicitor friend of his in Leeds. And one day I got this telephone call from uh, a solicitor in Leeds saying, you don't know me, uh, I, I'm not sure whether you can help me, but this is my problem. And he then expounded the problem and said, what can we do? And I, I gave him certain advice, and he came down. He was a very nice chap, again, called Jerry Perlman and we worked out a course of action, which included the recruitment of uh, John Foster, so John Foster QC, uh, to lead me, because John Foster was a a parliamentarian with excellent connections, and he would know better than I did what to do. And so, uh, in the meantime, the (coughs) the government here had appointed a committee or commission of privy councillors, to go out to Uganda to look into the situation so he and I went out to appear before the commission at its hearings in Hoima in Uganda uh, and there we were confronted by the lawyers for uh, the Baganda uh, and um, they were um, oh dear the name suddenly gone over my mind uh, but anyway uh, a very able English silk and uh, but we did, in the end, get a, a recommendation from the Commission that two of the counties should be returned to the Banyoro, and, and, and that was, was done. It wasn't exactly a case of public international law, though there were certain international law elements in it. Uh, it was a case that involved consideration of the history of Uganda and uh, of the uh, sociology of the people there, but, but very interesting nonetheless. So uh, <clears throat> that was the um, Uganda episode. Now, that brought me into closer contact with John Foster. John Foster was at that time uh, engaged as one of the counsel in what was, one of the, what was, and still is in a way, one of the most important cases dealt with by the international court, the Barcelona Traction case. But John was uh, contemplating uh, a retirement from the bar at that time. So he recommended uh, to the people concerned that I should be taken in to assist them. The people concerned were the uh, Société Générale, a major Belgian company, who were representing who were themselves shareholders in the Barcelona Traction Company. The Barcelona Traction Company had, as its name suggests, uh, had major interest in the electricity uh, industry in Barcelona and thereabouts. Uh, and uh, they had lost their assets to the machinations of uh, uh, a quite a, a distinguished Spanish entrepreneur called uh, Juan Marc. and uh, so uh, Spain had taken up their case in the international court. So, in that way, began my association with with the um, with Barcelona traction, which endured until the case was. Finished in 1970, unfortunately uh, without success. But it was uh, it's, it's a source of um, much um, uh, material for international lawyers. But I was quite busy with that, and also at about that time, uh, the British South Africa Company ran into problems in uh, southern in, in northern Rhodesia, uh, as northern Rhodesia. Approached independence, the question was what was to happen to their to their royalty rights, and various steps had to be taken to to um to protect them. I think I'll stop there. Thank you so much, sir. Not at all. Uh, we'll just draw a line across that point, shall Excellent. we? Excellent. Thank you.